thank you guys. For those of you who have not been following along with us lately, we've been in the book of Acts, and we've spent three weeks looking at Acts chapter 1 and uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and we, we paused. We paused partially because what we're doing right now as a church is to sync up what we're doing in children's ministry with what we're doing here in the pulpit. And we want that to serve our families, but we also want it to be a reminder to all of us, even if you don't have kids in children's ministry, that we are not two separate churches. We're not the church of adults and the church of kids. In the same way that you wouldn't separate up your individual family and say we're a family that is, you know, the adults and then the family of the kids. We have different roles in all of those sorts of things, of course, but we're, we're one group. And so for this year in particular, we really wanted to try as much as we can, especially over the time where, uh, where the BW guys are with us, is to sync up what we're doing with the kids uh, and what we're doing here on Sundays. So with that, the children's ministry f uh, curriculum pauses right in the middle of uh, Peter's speech there in Acts 2. Um, and so we were going to pause along with. And it, it's interesting, it was interesting for me at least, to think a little bit of the, um, the, the timing of when Acts was actually written. So let's just think through what we actually just were in last week. For about 2,000 years, uh, the Feast of Pentecost has, had been celebrated among the Jews. And so what was happening in A.D. 30 was actually the first of those kind of Pentecost moments. And so at uh, somewhere around the year 30 A.D., we had this, this first Pentecost, and it was the one that was really kind of driven by Leviticus 23. Up until that moment, if you had said Pentecost was going to get a complete reboot, uh, that wouldn't have made a lot of sense to people. Forty years later, somewhere around 70 A.D., is actually when this, uh, th this account was kind of given. What that means is for 40 years before Luke wrote the history of what had happened, the people of God, both in Jerusalem and then in all the places that they spread out from Jerusalem, were living as, like we talked about last week, little mini temples. Christians no longer believed after Pentecost that in order to encounter God's spirit, you had to go to God's mountain or to God's building. What happened at Pentecost was the very physical very sensory moment at which the glory of God in buildings transferred to the glory of God on people. And we'll talk next week about what they said, because that's largely what Peter was talking about, what was really going on, the rest of the Old Testament, particularly Joel, that he kind of explains of that moment. But what I want to talk to you about is the 40 years in between those, because in 70 AD, whenever Theophilus and then everybody that Theophilus shared Luke's work with received this historical for them description of what had happened, it would be kind of like if I wanted to tell you the story of our church and said, let me, let me tell you what happened 24 years ago that started this congregation together. Some of you would have been there. For some of you, this would be news. Think of it in the same way that as Luke is writing around 70 AD, he's looking back to something that took place in 30 AD, and he's saying, hey, this is what happened 40 years ago. Now, here's what I would assume, that in 70 AD, 
those people wouldn't be saying, who's this Holy Spirit? What are you, what are you talking about? Something like that took place in the life of the church? We don't know anything about the Spirit of God. We've heard of this Jesus, but we don't know anything about the Spirit. That's actually a moment that is going to take place later on. There will be a moment where, as the gospel is spreading around, people had heard about Jesus, but they hadn't heard about the Spirit. Instead, I think that what happened when those who received Luke's letter, what happened at that moment was that they said, oh, yeah, we know what it's like to live as people of the Spirit. We know what it's like for the Holy Spirit both to infuse and empower our lives and to be in powerful work among us whenever we gather together. And so that historical beginning of it back in 30 AD, 40 years ago, it's good to read about that. But we know what it's like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for witness. Now, it's probably, it would be one of those moments that would be significant because I don't think every Pentecost after that, they always saw 3,000 people added to their church every single day. This was a significant moment. But what we're going to look at isn't one of those Pentecost power kind of moments. We're going to look at the mundane power kind of moments. Because the Holy Spirit, the, the, the curriculum is going to point us today to not kind of a, either the moment of Pentecost or the account about Pentecost. It's going to point us actually to something that was written probably right there in the middle, somewhere around 50 AD, when the book of Galatians was written by Paul. And Paul is trying to explain to a group of churches what it's like to be empowered by the Spirit, not so much to speak, but to live out what you say. We've often heard the phrase, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? If Pentecost is the talking, Galatians chapter 5 is more the, the walking this out. And so the same spirit who empowers what we saw in terms of this miracle, right? If, so we just go back to what we looked at last week. Jesus had rebooted Passover. There had been a new Passover lamb. But that Passover lamb wasn't like every other lamb before that. This one had come back to life. And this sacrifice for God's people not only was a substitute for them in death, he was a now a substitute for them in life. And so he, risen to new life, was going to stand in for them and be the example for them of what they could actually enjoy of a new life with God as well. And so an old feast that celebrates freedom from death and freedom from Egypt is now being rebooted as to something that is freedom from death and freedom from slavery, just a slavery to sin. Jesus then after that, after hanging out and explaining all of this and kind of helping the disciples to reboot their minds around the idea that this wasn't going to be Old Testament only, but Old Testament plus. Jesus coming is the fulfillment of all these echoes and all these thoughts and all these desires of the Old Testament. Jesus was going to come as the fulfillment of those. He said, well, there's this feast coming. Well, he didn't quite tell them when, but there was this other feast coming. 50 years, or 50, 50 years, 50 days after pa Passover. And so everyone's gathered together for that feast, the Feast of Weeks, also talked about in Leviticus. And everyone, as a pilgrimage feast, arrives for this moment at Pentecost that brings the Holy Spirit in power. And as we're going to see, a lot of powerful things take place. And then life happens. 
You guys have been there? I feel like this happens for us pretty frequently because we have these moments that sometimes like the seasons sync up, right? We're in Lent now. You may be intentionally trying to sync your lifestyle around Lent. Christmas is probably the one that captures our attention a little bit more, right? There's an there's a anticipation leading up to it. It has its own kind of mountaintop kind of moment. And then January hits, well, February hits, and we just say, well, what, what's going on? Youth camp is often that way for, for our teens. We kind of ramp up into it for three days, four days. They're there. They're excited. They're, they're just on fire. And then life kind of fades away. We all go through those rhythms of feeling a certain surge and adrenal boost of intense, like, affection for God. But then things kind of after that, they need more than adrenaline spiritually. We need something healthy that just kind of sustains our walk with God. Galatians 5 is one of those texts. It's one of those texts that remind us about the Holy Spirit, not to do what feels like the spectacular, but no less powerful. How we don't just talk about Jesus, but how we live like him. And so I want to remind you of a couple things. Now, if this Galatians 5 seems somewhat familiar, that's good because it was just in November that we were in the book of Galatians. And so we are looking at a text that we just looked at three weeks ago. If you want to remember that one, I read you guys a little poem in the middle of it. The work of works will work in you. If you want, there's a link to that in the, uh, in the emails that are going out. We're going to take a slightly different approach. Uh, but let me remind you, in the book of Galatians, what Paul has already said about the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the Holy Spirit in, in Galatians chapter 3 as one who was promised that everybody in Galatia had received. Having received the promised Holy Spirit, and his point in that point in chapter 3 is to say, you didn't get the Holy Spirit because of all the works you did. You got the Holy Spirit because you believed what God had said he would do. So you got the Spirit not by the law, but by faith. And having received the Spirit, chapter 3, he then says in chapter 4, what the Spirit does is, it's not just the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God's Son. And then he says if the God's Son could talk to God as a son talks to a father, even using language, Abba, Father, that the spirit that we've received who was promised to us actually gives us that much confidence to pray to God the way that Jesus would have confidence to pray to God as a son who had pleased his father. Not as the prodigal son, but as the only true obedient son. The Holy Spirit has been poured into us in such a way that we can have standing before God and intimacy with God that we could speak to him the way that Jesus did. So he says, this isn't just the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God's Son who's been poured out for you so that you could cry out to God, Abba, Father. And then in chapter 5, he mentions the Spirit again a little bit before this text. And he says that it's through the Spirit that we eagerly await for everything that's coming down the pike for us which kind of makes sense based on everything he says, right? If you had received the Spirit, but then found out that the Holy Spirit was the Spirit of God's laborers, 
and that the relationship you were supposed to have with God was one of dutiful work so that you got paid or punished based on how well you did your work, I don't know that I would really await those moments. I used to be a teacher, and I had a good relationship with the principal, and I had a good relationship with our head teacher over our Bible department, but I really didn't like when they visited my classroom. Because when they visited the classroom while I was teaching, it wasn't for just that moment of, hey, Darren, I wonder where you're at in our little, you know, March Madness tournament. They were coming in with a clipboard to try and see how I was doing. I didn't always feel great when they would show up. I didn't eagerly await their arrival. But if the Holy Spirit that's been given to us is, as Paul has said in the book of Galatians, not a spirit of God's laborers, but the spirit of God's son, then actually what can be true for me is that I can look forward to being with God. I can look forward to the arrival of God as one who would just anticipate being with dad. So that's chapters 3, 4, and 5 up till this point. That's where we realize that the received spirit is the one who reminds us of what he's doing. And the passage we looked at last week was this reminder that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5. Or as we sang today, all praise to him whose love imparts, or whose, you know, whose son imparts, sorry, what's the line, Keith? I just messed it up. All praise to him whose power imparts the love of God within our hearts. The spirit of all truth and peace. The fount of joy and holiness. That's what you get for jotting down lyrics too quickly. That's Romans 5. We praise the spirit of God because through his power, what he imparts to us isn't that you earned the stuff you get from God. His power imparts to us that you have received the love of God. And what I was kind of wrapping up our message with last week was trying to say that if you truly, truly believed this, everything would be different. And I think that totally syncs up with what Paul's going to say about the Spirit of God. If the battle was simply to believe that you could be loved by God separate from what you had earned, and if that was the message not only that you dutifully shared with other people, but that you abundantly believed deep within, then what would just flow up out of you? Or to use the language of Galatians 5, what would grow up out of you would just be totally different. Because if God is stingy, then we're stingy and bitter. But if God is generous, then we're just grateful and similarly generous. If the life that God is sharing with his people is good, then ultimately there's a goodness that flows up out of us as well. So if you want a little bit more of an exegetical dive into Galatians 5, 16 to 25, listen to that other message. This one, we're going to be dutiful to the text, but I just want to point out in a little bit less of a particularly consistent way and a little bit more of a skimming across way, I just want to show you what Paul says that the Holy Spirit does. All right? power in everyday life. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So let's look first at the fact that we get to walk by the Spirit. Or as we've said kind of here in our bulletin, that it's the Spirit in front of his people. 
in verse 16 of chapter 5, he says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is absolutely Paul grabbing Old Testament language. He's not inventing this metaphor. This is God's own metaphor. This is a metaphor from Moses right in the very beginning. We've got a track record of people who live, have kids, and die. Live, kid, die. Live, kid, die. Live, kid, die. That's the rhythm that we read right in the very beginning of Genesis as Seth's family starts to grow up out. It was Seth's family because Abel's family wasn't possible because Cain had misjudged God's nature and then acted out of the way that he thought God was treating him. God was stingy, therefore Cain was jealous, therefore Cain killed Abel, therefore there's not going to be a lineage that comes out of Abel. And so a replacement is given to Eve and to Adam of Seth, and Seth's family grows. And the mandate to fill the earth is starting to happen, but it's being marked by death. It's marked by life, but it's also just incredibly marked by death. This guy was born when this guy, when he was old, this old, then he had this many, he had this kid. And then when this happened, and then he died. And then that guy who was born, he grew and for a little while, then he had a kid. And then when this many years old, he died and over and over and over until Enoch shows up on the scene. But Enoch walked with God and God took him and he was no more. The next time that phrase is used is then later on when we track with one other individual, a man named Noah. And the same way that Enoch was described, Noah's described, he walked with God. But interestingly, it wasn't Enoch or Noah who was the first reference to walking with God. It was the garden. The garden, in what was going to be a tragic story, we got the context of what was lost in Genesis 3, because right in the very beginning of it, chapter 3, verse 8, it is God walking in the cool of the day. But this time, as we would sort of led to believe that had been some sort of a rhythm, this time the people don't want, they don't eagerly await the arrival of God. They are ashamed at who they are, and so they have to flee from God. They have to hide themselves and look like the tree that they just took fruit from. And God ultimately says, that tree of life that tree sharing our life with those made in our image, that can't be something they partake in anymore. To join my life with this sinful condition would be dreadful, and so we have to get them out of the garden. But what's Enoch doing? Somehow, even out in the wilderness, Enoch is engaged in this garden work of walking with God. Noah engaged in garden work of walking with God. Somehow, in the middle of the wilderness, He's recreating a bit of an Eden-like experience where he's found the capacity to walk with God. And so Paul says, the Spirit can be out in front of you day by day in that exact same way. You could not fear God, but walk with him. He moves the metaphor a little bit further and actually puts the Holy Spirit out front of us in verse 18 so that it's not that we're just walking with God like, hey, where do you want to go? I don't know, God. Why don't we go this way? Sure, you're always right, Darren. Let's just go wherever you want. No, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, same walking analogy, same movement, same fellowship, but the Spirit's out 
front. Verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, which is the assumed thing, he then says, let us then keep in step with him. And so there's these three steps. Do you recognize that you're called to a life of walking with God? A relationship that isn't static, but is personal as you're in the going. I do. Do you recognize that the Holy Spirit will be out in front of you? Verse 18, that you'll be led by the Spirit. I, I, I do. Okay, well, if you get all that, then you need to keep up. There's a sense that your obedience, though relational, is empowered by, but also led by, and so we're required to be in step with the Holy Spirit. This is the first way Paul wants us to understand daily life with God in the Holy Spirit way. Pentecost power, yes. Mundane daily power does make available the sense that we can be directed by, led by, whatever kind of metaphor or word you want to use that makes it a bit more personal for you. The Holy Spirit is clearly out in front and we're called to be connecting ourselves to him so that the main idea would be walking with him. This is the frustrating thing I find in the Bible about prepositions in particular. Most of them have some sort of geographic sense or spatial sense of things, but we're relating to God as spirit. And so even the preposition itself is, is somewhat fluid. It's, it's hard to define. If I were to say to you, am I with the pulpit right now? You'd probably say yes. Why? Because there. Sorry to those of you at home. Am I still with the pulpit? I guess. Am I still with the pulpit? At what point have I stopped being with the pulpit? Was Bob with the pulpit? Because I'm with Bob now. <laughs> so is Bob with the pulpit? I mean, we're all in the room with the pulpit. There's a certain, you get what I'm saying about the metaphor, right? The preposition is like really clear. We get what it means, but I don't think we get what this means. Except for at some point you felt like I wasn't with the pulpit, right? I don't know that we would have necessarily said that by virtue of distance, Maybe you thought of it by virtue of my orientation. Am I with the pulpit? Because I'm kind of looking at the pulpit. I'm still kind of referencing the pulpit. Here I am, but am I, I'm with the pulpit. Maybe that was the way you were thinking of it. Maybe you were just thinking that I'm no longer with the pulpit because clearly we're just hanging out. We're just over here talking. Am I still with the pulpit? I don't know. My notes are over there. I'm still on my notes. So you're thinking, yeah, he's still with the pulpit. But if we sat down and we started talking about Hope's mission strip, which you should give to, by the way, Maybe you wouldn't think I'm with the pulpit. Do you see what I'm saying? Here's what I would implore you to define for yourself, not in a way that you create reality, but you are at least honest about reality. What does it look like for you to keep in step with the Spirit obediently so that you are walking with Him? What, what does that look like? It might mean that you are an active reader, an active studier, an active memorizer because your withness with the Spirit is very academically oriented. And oftentimes we talk that way, right? We are people of a book. 
There's recorded will of God for us in a book, which means that we ought to read and study. But if you're not particularly academic, that might be a hard way for you to think about it. It might be that your struggle isn't so much to know, but it's to do. It's not so much just a talking the talk or memorizing the talk. It's a walking the walk. Do you, this, is, this is the hard moment of preaching. There's not a lot of us here, but trying to be impress, incredibly personal about how to say what withness should look like. But I think I could say this. I think you know when you're not. And I think you know when you're moving towards it. So there's kind of a first question that comes out of this. And I think it has to do with the question of whether we are, because I think this is a command. Verse 18 makes an assumption. If you're led by the Spirit, then do not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says we're supposed to walk in verse 16. He says we're supposed to keep in step in verse 25. And yet, frustratingly so, he doesn't define what those practices would look like. If you're going to keep in step with the Spirit, then you better be doing your daily devotions, probably between 6.30 and 7 before your day begins. Or if you're like Sophia, then sometime between 3.30 and 4, whenever your day begins. I don't know exactly how you guys work your rhythms. You guys, Some of you guys are up in the morning when I think, like, what's wrong with you? And then other times, there's people in my house who are a little bit more sleepy than I am in the morning. We're different people. But he doesn't exactly say exactly what this looks like, but we are commanded, all of us, to be able to have an answer and know if we're with him. One way Paul talks about this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we're the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, Paul, both here in Galatians and when, when he's just talking about people he's relatively kind of you know, trying to encourage in very general ways or with the Corinthians where he has incredibly specific problems and he's trying to encourage them. In both situations, Paul is using Old Testament metaphors and saying, this better be true in your life today. And it does mean you shouldn't be walking with some people, some ways of thinking, some practices, because those are idolatrous in nature. And it does mean, though, that you ought to be with God in a way that, I'm not saying you get to define what's true, but there's a certain sense that some of this bears on our conscience in a very personal way, potentially in a subjective way but in that everyone ought to have an answer of you knowing whether or not you are with the Spirit or without. You are being led by the Spirit or you are straying or you have just parked yourself and he is kind of moving on. You are keeping step or you are straying behind. The second thing, though, that we read that the Holy Spirit does here. It's not just that we see the Holy Spirit in front of his people. It's that we see the Holy Spirit then fighting for his people. This is what comes out then in verse 16. We had read verse 16. If you're led by the Spirit, you will not, completes this way, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now that is a phrase right there. The desires of the flesh. Though we might use the word desire kind of in a neutral way, that is not the way it comes across most of the time when Paul is talking. 
passions and desires, particularly when they're associated with the body or the flesh, do not lead us in positive ways. These are toxic desires. He spells it out in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and they keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there is something that Paul is saying the Holy Spirit opposes, and it is what your flesh wants. Because what your flesh wants keeps you from what you really want to do. Now, that's the hard th way that he uses this. There are spiritual desires and fleshly desires. And at the end of verse 17, he says, there is a thing you want to do, referencing the Spirit's desires within you. But the flesh's desires are keeping you from doing those things. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, he speaks in the same way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind same author different group of people but he's making the exact same point there is a deadness to god that creates a zombie-like attitude for decay and death and if you just let it go it's going to feel good and feel natural and though the world would tell you it's even desire you ought to obey it's not going to lead to life <coughs> instead like the rest of mankind we used to live in obedience to these passions. We were the ones not with our own desires. We were carrying out somebody else's desires, this traitor within. But that is not a battle for which we are alone. Paul's point in Galatians chapter 5 is that though there is that ungodly, deathly kind of desire that is waging war, that war has been engaged by the Spirit of God. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Yes, but the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So in other words, we are not alone, just helplessly besieged by our own desires with nothing to do. If we've been joined to God, if the Spirit of God lives in us, if that Pentecost moment of God saying, I'm not going to be just in a building, I'm going to be in my believers from this point on, what that means is that you take a powerful force with you into this battle. Paul then, in another spot, describes how we're empowered for this battle in such a way that he calls it armor. And in particular, some of the armor seems very spiritual. He says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And here is the armor given to and attributed to the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says, this is how you deploy the Spirit and his sword by praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. There is a clear battle that he describes in chapter 5 that there is desire inside you that ought to be stoked, that is good, but it is opposed. There is a deathly desire inside you, and the question is, what's going to win in that? And Paul says, well, uh, let me... 
This thing I'm talking about with the Galatians, let me just remind you of something I'm saying here to the Ephesians. You are equipped for this battle. If you use all the armor, you recognize it's got a whole lot of Old Testament force as well. Because everything that we're told that we can be equipped with, God is said in the Old Testament to have equipped himself for battle with exactly that same armor. He's the one who rides into battle dressed in this armor. And what Paul says is in Ephesians 6 is, and he's going to lend that to you. Not in a way that's going to feel like David getting Saul's armor. Like, I, I can't use this stuff, man. It's too big. It's just, you know, makes me totally clunky. But in a way that works, but for which we need to be more comfortable, perhaps, than we are now. In other words, when you hear a sermon preached, when you open up your Bible to read, when you walk through a process, if you do, of memorizing the word. This isn't so you get a gold star on your Sunday school chart and can find yourself as Pharisee of the month who's better than everybody else who doesn't do these things. This isn't just so you can feel better so that whenever you get into heaven, you get to butt to the front of the line because God's like, man, I really wanted those who were a lot more, you know, adept at, at quoting my word and studying my word. That's not the point. This is to dress you for battle and to give you both a defensive and an offensive weapon so that when you are struggling, you can be praying, but your prayers aren't just, wow, God, this is hard. You can say, God, you promised that in this moment, though I feel alone and the only way it seems to comfort me is to go to the blank you actually said, I'm not alone. You said that you love me, and you said you would send your spirit to me to remind me of your love. And right now, I want to believe that if I really knew the unknowable depths of your love, if I really knew the unknowable breadth of your love, if I really knew the unknowable sense of just how borderless your love is for me, that we're studying the stars, and we're understanding how far every star, actually not star, but galaxy, galaxy really is from each other and from us and you've said that's how much I love you if I could remember that I might do a little bit better in this battle because suddenly sin doesn't look so appealing but the sword of the spirit in the word of God has helped me in that moment not to give in to the works of flesh in my life that would lead to death but instead to resist by the spirit's power because not only is the spirit with us and in front of us as we walk. He is fighting for us so that, to use Paul's language again, in all of these circumstances, we can be equipped. The last thing in particular is that this is the spirit, not just in front and not just fighting, but bringing fruit in his people. Because if we give in, we know where that leads. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and orgies and woo, some really bad ones. The ones that if you were to be caught up into them as part of them or viewing them, you would have no defense because they are just clearly off. But it's not just those things that are death-like in our lives. It's the other ones that we can tend to excuse a little bit more easily, that we can tend to relabel 
because we're calling them prayer requests when actually they're not. They're divisions and dissensions and rivalries and envy. And even in those moments, you might be talking about the things that aren't orgies, but they are drunkenness, the addictions in somebody else's life. And you want to pray for them, but really what you're doing is promoting your sense of superiority by praying for them. Because it turns out that the works of death in our life are not just bold, but they are insidious. But no matter whether they're there, they are all weed-like, they are all decay-like, and Paul says they are all actually evident. The moments you replace God and live for something else, your idolatries are like sorcery. Your enmity and strife and jealousy turns to fits of anger and rivalry and dissension and division. And he says, verse 21, this isn't the kingdom of God. This isn't the kingdom of God kind of work. This isn't the kingdom Jesus came and represented to us. It's not what he invited us back to. And I, he warned you as he warns us before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the spirit. But we're not slaves to these things. But this doesn't have to be the way that we live because Jesus came and he wasn't ruled by any of them. Jesus came and he spoke truth, but not in a way that was destructive, but that was life-giving. Jesus didn't come for other people's death. He came for their healing. And so it says the fruit of the Spirit is actually love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those, he says, who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. But what if, what if we didn't just take all of these and just say, like, yeah, look, we know. The kids are in there. That's good. They're probably working on some sort of a little craft that's got a bunch of little fruits, and that's going to be kind of cute. And there's these nine of them. Let's just let's move on. I'd really like to talk about that. Against such things, there is no law. Okay, go listen to the other message. Because if you would flip over on the back page of your insert and your bulletins, I'm going to invite you to a project. It's an evaluative project of you, by you. You can recruit help if you think you need help. This can be, you can phone a friend if you want. But there's no 50-50s. We're not eliminating any. There's all nine of them. Because I think sometimes our fruit, in particular, can be in a budding form. It's, it's there. It's probably not edible by others yet. But I do see the Holy Spirit working in me and creating this kind of a desire. It could be that it's not just budding, but it, there are more than just little buds. There are promising signs. This is like the apple that is there on the tree, not at the end of the season, but it's there, and it's looking like an apple. And you, you actually want to take care of this apple. If you want to know how to take care of apple trees, do not talk to me. But talk to Brad. Because Brad will tell you that when an apple's in that kind of form, it's susceptible. It's susceptible to fungus. It's susceptible to bugs. And so there are ways, if you are particularly careful, that you can even take a jar of clay and dip it around each individual apple. It's not a pesticide, so don't worry about that if that's kind of your thing. 
but it is something that will protect that apple from the things that would eat it away and keep it from really developing into something that would make a nice snack or a nice pie. So maybe the fruit in your life is budding. Maybe it is promising, but it needs some particular care. Maybe it is ripe and ready. Maybe you would look and you would say, man, this one of the nine, I'm doing pretty good. I'd actually say that, and I'm not trying to brag on this one, but I feel like there's a certain measure of joy in my life that I don't think I could explain other than the fact that God is reminding me readily that he loves me, and that is just helping me through some stuff that I think should make me kind of depressed, but actually, there's joy. Or maybe you would have to admit that there were seasons in your life where you had been able to track all of those but something's happened to the fruit, and it's a little bit rotting, or a little overripe. Maybe you'd look back and say there were seasons of that, but it, I, I don't say that there are fresh apples growing when it comes to my sense of kindness. We were married, and I was very kind for the first maybe 10 years. And then she spent all the kindness I had. And that hasn't been growing in my life in the last five years. Maybe you'd look at different ones. Here's, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On the back of your sheet, you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you're lucky it's 11.15 right now. Because my plan was to say, let's take five minutes and do this now. I'm going to trust you to take a little time and do it on your own. This is a good Psalm 139 kind of moment. Lord, would you test me? Because you know me. Would you be see if there's anything of anxiety in me? And then would you reveal it and then lead me? Just nine questions, nine categories. Do you tend to live for your own good or for that of others? Love. Is the sense of things being okay so that you can deal with things that are hard? Is it dependent on all of your circumstances or is there something else anchoring you and producing fruit that isn't dependent on how hot it is in life right now? Joy and peace and patience. Is what you deem to be good in your life something that you recognize is coming from God so that you're able to be faithful and gentle and kind? Or have you determined good as being something that somebody else is withholding from you? And so, like that dog that you see in the video where the, the owner puts, like, two little dibbles of, like, food in their bowl when they're expecting, you know, like, two cups. And the little dog looks up and goes, is that the way you've been defining life? Yo, you were supposed to fill up my bowl. You only gave me two. So, yeah, I know you want me to be kind and faithful and gentle. But you haven't been good. I know what good would be, and I can be those things if somebody else is doing the good or bringing the good. If she's treating me this way again, then I can be those things. 
Or is the Holy Spirit working in you to remind you that self-control comes because of how you're grounded in him? And so those other things are produced because you're actually in control of yourself, not somebody else being in control of yourself. These are the kinds of prayerful questions I think could bear fruit for us. If we honestly ask, budding, needing some help, ripe and ready, or rotting, what would that look like? But then, remember this. You have a great high priest. Not just a distant judge. He is described in Hebrews as the one who came and abided in his father's love, but then invited us in the same way to invite abide in his father's love and in his love for us. He's the one who said, it's going to be better that I go away so that you don't just have me as an example, but you can have me empowered in you through the spirit, reminding you, you have access to your father. You have joy in his presence. You have his faithfulness and goodness and love abounding in your life so that if you can just drink these things, if you can just dig your roots down into them, you can be that Psalm 1 believer. So that he is blessed who actually is like a tree planted by the water of the love of God. This doesn't just have to be Jesus. This can be us. And he, our faithful and gentle and sympathetic high priest, is currently interceding for us. So that the power of Pentecost can actually show up in our everyday life. But I do think it starts with an honest assessment. How's your tree doing? Take some time, pray. If you need some help, my guess is there's somebody who would be willing to help. Hopefully they'll do it in a loving way. But even if it feels a little jagged, it's okay. Some of what you might have been producing might have been a little hard for them to talk about. But they can still be helpful in the process. Two questions as we end. Two things to remember as we end. Verse 25 has these words, if we live by the Spirit, it is interesting that Paul says, if. So the first thing to remember is don't presume upon the life given to believers by the Spirit of God. We don't end this way because I feel like I know you guys relatively well, but I would say this. If you've been around our church and you have been playing the game for a while, fruit doesn't work on trees that aren't connected to life. And if you have been sort of aware that this message is appealing, but you are not connected, you are not alive, then please wait a while because I don't think God wants to save you today. No. If you are aware that you think you may not be alive in the spirit, you may not actually be connected. You may not, you may have heard this idea that Jesus didn't just come to be admired, but Jesus actually came to by faith, take your place in his death and usher you into a new life where you could actually bear fruit with God. If you'd realize this may be true of other people, but I don't think this is true today. Then at the end of this service, please come up. We would love to pray with you. We would love to let you pray that today would be the the day that you're saved, that you start bearing fruit. I would rather have this moment be a little bit more clear in our conversation, perhaps a little more regularly than we do. 
so that we're not presuming upon life given to believers by the Spirit of God. So if you go to verse 25 and you read, if we live by the Spirit, and you'd say, actually, I don't think I'm alive by the Spirit, then don't wait. Let's pray today that you would know life in God. But the second point is not so much just not to presume upon the life, but if it's there, the second half of 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So then the second point is this. Please, believers, don't wander from the help that's given to believers by the Spirit of God. Let's not presume upon the life, but let's not wander from the help that's there. And if you would have to say, I have not been walking with the Spirit, then please, let's wait a month before we take care of that. Let's wait till the next phase of life. Let's wait till school's done. Let's wait till you get a job. Let's wait till you get married. Let's wait till you get your house. Let's wait till you have your kids. Let's wait till you're dead to bear any fruit. Or we could just say, I think God probably wants to take care of that today. And let's have you come up and let's take some time to pray as well. Let me invite the worship team up. We're going to sing together. But if you would say, I think the Lord has more for me through his spirit for my everyday life. We would love to take time and pray with you today. So let's pray now. Father, I ask, Lord, not because I as a preacher stand with a record of perfection. I ask, Lord, not because I as a pastor stand and say this congregation should be more like me and if I were, then this would serve them well. Lord, I thank you for good examples in this room of what these things have looked like. But more than that, everyone in this room, we thank you for Jesus. Who came to rescue us from the zombie-like parade we were on towards death. And to reshape the direction. And to re-empower our lives. So what we ask today, Lord, is that by your spirit, you would either bring us to life or remind us of how we're connected to your life? Would you help us to stop following other ways and start following you? Or would you remind us that we can follow you? Would you help us to stop fighting against your spirit? Or would you at least remind us that your spirit is at war against those things inside us that lead to death? Lord, if today would be the first time or today would just be the next time. And we pray today for power in the life of this church. That we could fight sin, that we could walk with you and that we could bear fruit. And that your kingdom would be marked by those who are a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name stand together and let's sing.